The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. Good day, America. Welcome, Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people, all the boat rockers in the house, and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio, where we use the Bible and the Constitution not to see who's on the right or the left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina. The editor at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. And for our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns about. I hold to the book, the Bible, as the authoritative word of God. Glad that you guys have joined us this morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so. SonsOfLibertyRadio.com and also SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. In fact, if you're listening by way of the radio and you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right, you can see the face that's made for radio, head over to SonsOfLibertyMedia.com and there you're going to see two videos at the top of the page. The one on the left side of the page is Bradley's show from the previous day, so if you miss that, you want to catch it, you can do so up until 3 p.m. Eastern today, at which time he'll be live in that little area right there. On the right side of the page is where we're at. Click on the play button, blow it up on whatever device you got, look for the rumble icon, bottom right-hand corner. Click on that, and you can join us in the chat uh, over on Rumble. Got a lot of friends over there this morning. Good morning. Good to see you guys. And while you're over there, please subscribe to the channel at Sons of Liberty Radio Live, Sons of Liberty Radio Live on Rumble, and we're also streaming live over on BeforeIt'sNews.com, top of the page there, and we appreciate Michael and his team giving us a spot on their platform. Uh, quickly back over to SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. Uh, right up under where we're streaming live is where you can sign up for our email newsletter. That goes out once a day, late afternoon, early evening. All the articles we have, including the morning show archive, and you can see it's right there at the top uh, from yesterday. So <clears throat> if you missed yesterday's show, you can go right there. You can listen to the podcast or you can watch the video, whichever one you want to do. And then all of the articles, any of that stuff that we had, the videos and stuff were in there. I didn't take the videos out individually. Uh, simply because there were Twitter videos, and Twitter videos take me forever to get an embed code because you've got to go through three or four pages, and then eat, and that's for each one, <laughs> just to get the code. Uh, it's not like you know any of these video platforms where you can just click a button and you've got the code. Um, it it takes a long time, so yeah. Anyway, so but the links are there for the article so that you can watch the videos if you wanted to do that. All right. Uh, and finally, in our, our store is available. We are uh, continuing to talk about Bradley's book, uh, Soldier of the Cross. If you, are, if you are a new believer or if you're someone who is interested in what is all this Christian stuff, believe it or not, there's plenty of people here in the United States who've never heard the real gospel. Oh, they might have heard Jesus. They might have heard something that resembles the gospel, but they haven't heard that. And so if you're a person that's very interested in saying, okay, 
you know, I may not agree with these people who call themselves followers of Christ, but I want to hear what Jesus said himself. I want to evaluate it for myself. I want to see what he said. I, I would say, yeah, you can read your Bible, um, but uh, the soldier of the cross is very is a very basic thing of what God does in men, what he does, not what men do, but what God does in them that results in them doing. And it's that whole uh, Ephesians 2 uh, portion. Everybody reads 7, 8, and 9, and they leave off 10. Because somehow somebody thinks that verse 10, which uh, God has created us, you know, his workmanship in Christ Jesus, and we're to walk in those good works. They somehow think that those walking in those good works is somehow um, uh, at loggerheads with the gospel of grace, and it's not. In fact, the gospel of grace is what speaks to the fact of how men can walk in good works before the Lord. They do so because of what God did in them. That's the point. And this is James's point too. Show me your faith by your works. Show me that you've got what you say you've got on the inside that I can't see by what I can see. So that's that's a, that's a portion of what it is. Anyway, and we're going to be talking about that today, uh, especially among us men. Uh, now, ladies, <clears throat> those of you who are listening, uh, hopefully, many of you can say yes, amen. Glory. <laughs> you know, right on. Uh, you feel free to shout that out if that's what you want to do. Um, because what we've seen today in America has been really, uh, you know, fellas, let's let's face it. We're, we're the ones, we're, I was thinking of this this morning, we're just like our father Adam, aren't we? He forsook his duty in leading, protecting, and guarding his wife. He forsook that duty. And as a result, he led all men into sin. His wife was deceived. Then he went along with her sin. And he led humanity into that. And this is why we had to have the second Adam. This is, you know, celebrating the incarnation. This is why we had to have the second Adam, the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. It's why we had to have him come and live perfectly before the Father and then die on our behalf. He was the only one who was able to do that. He was sinless, so therefore he could substitute himself for those who were guilty. And in the process, those who were guilty have his righteousness imputed to them or given to them in their account. And all of their lawlessness is given into his, and God judged it in Christ on the cross. So this is very important to understand why we're called to be who we're called to be, men. And so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you uh, the things that I shared in Michigan uh, on the, thur- the Thursday night I was there, and that was to God, God send us men. Now, you guys may remember we had Charlie Stewart on from God uh, Send Us Men Ministries. Uh, you can find him at GodSendUsMen.com. And I really like Charlie. I like his example that he is a guy who... Uh, whatever he learns, he's seeking to put into practice. He's done that with his family. He's done it over decades. So it's not like it's a trivial thing for Charlie. And I have a tremendous respect, and I, I, I see what he's done. And there are, there's definitely elements that I really gravitate towards and I see, and there are others where I'm not, I'm not very clear on. Uh, but he is, and he lives that out. 
One of the things that they do is when, before Charlie speaks, and by the way, he is on the same radio station that I am, not Red State Talk Radio, but Missouri Liberty Radio. You guys can find that online. Um, He's on there each day as well. So uh, if you guys want to go and and, and support those guys, please do so. Uh, We're going to see if we can bring Sam. He's the guy who runs it. I think you, you guys will find Sam to be a hoot. Uh, he's just a really a very knowledgeable man and uh, pretty fascinating circumstances he and his wife are in, and yet he's doing all this. So we're going to see if we can bring Sam on here on the show very soon. Uh, but one of the things they do is they play a song. It's by a guy by the name of Frederick Gilman. And if I recall correctly, he wrote this hymn around the turn of the 20th century. Um, and I just want to read to you these four short verses <clears throat> of God Send Us Men whose aim twill be. That's the name of the hymn. And here's what it says, if you haven't heard it. God send us men whose aim twill be not to defend some ancient creed, but to live out the laws of right in every thought, word, and deed. God send us men, alert and quick, his lofty precepts to translate until the laws of right become the laws and habits of the state. Do you see the influence that the church is to have that men are to have upon even their government. Yep. Yep. And you can't do that by compromising, at least not compromising on things that are essential. You can compromise on the color of the walls and the carpet and all that stuff. But when it comes to right and wrong, commands, statutes, judgments, as we talked about yesterday, they need to be the laws of God. God send us men of steadfast will, patient, courageous, strong, and true, with vision clear and mind equipped, His will to learn, His work to do. God send us men with hearts ablaze, all truth to love, all wrong to hate. These are the patriots nations need. They are the bulwarks of the state. So if you want to keep the state in check, what do you you need? You need godly men. They have the law of God in their hearts. We're going to talk about some of that in just a minute. So they're going to have to have it in their hearts and in their minds, and they're going to have to be looking to perform it. As Bradley says, we're here to mold consensus, not be a part of the mold that's already constructed. We want to mold something different. We want to reform it. We want to put it back in its proper position, in its proper place, in its proper boundaries, the state that is. And to do that, we've got to start at the bottom, and that's with us as individual men. So, the obvious question is, and some people will say, Oh, Tim, you you need a book to tell you how to be a man? No, we are men. (laughs) Uh, Genetically, biologically, we're men. This this is why the whole trans-delusional movement is, uh, is just that, a delusion. Men know they're men. They just fail to live up to being men. And then we have some people who think that being chauvinistic is being men. And that's not being men either. So you can swing one all the way to one side, and then that pendulum swing all the way to the other side, and somewhere there's a balance there of being manly, of having uh, uh, being meek, keeping yourself under control, learning how to control yourself. All of that is part of being a man. So let's take a look at what the Bible says about being a man, what the Creator has instructed us in, and that's where I want to go today. Because, you know, if if we're to change, fellas, if we're to do the things that we're talking about doing, being the militia, we're going to talk about that, Lord willing, uh, 
possibly tomorrow. I'm hoping to do it tomorrow. Uh, we're going to talk about the, the militia. The militia is made up of men, okay? Law enforcers, those who repelled the invasions, those who put down insurrections. But being men isn't just about force. It's about character. It's about who we are. It's about how we, who we are in Christ. And so with that said, let's start at the first place where we see man. And that's in Genesis chapter 1. And what do we read there? Well, verse 27 um, and following, it says, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. This is the original command. And I know people uh, uh, poo-poo the dominion mandate. This command here has never, ever been rescinded. Never. It's never been rescinded. You can't find that anywhere in the Scripture. What is the command? To be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth. Take dominion over the creatures that God has put on the earth. Not submit to them as though some kind of an idol you know, protected class and all this stuff, but it is to take dominion over them. Verse 9 says, or 29 says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed to you, it shall be for meat. Nobody should be controlling the plants and the trees and the food sources on the earth, except for individual men, not governments, not the World Economic Forum, not any of these people. Men, individual men are to do that. It's a gift from God. And yes, that includes every herb-bearing seed. Okay? Think about the laws that's been written against the things that God has created, and it's been made out to be evil. When you read here at the end, verse 31... Behold, it was very good. All right? So that's the first one. Now, if we go over to chapter 2 of Genesis, here's what we read here. Beginning at verse <clears throat> excuse me, 16 and following. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. I, I tell you, I've been thinking along these lines of can there be more application, or can there be application here? And I think there can be. I think all Scripture is meant to be applied in some manner or measure, and it all obviously points to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's His words, not mine, Luke chapter 24. But uh, this, this knowledge of good and evil, I often think about certain technology, I think about certain knowledge that men acquire, and I think about, does it lead them towards God, or does it lead them away from God in doing that which is evil? And i got to tell you, for the most part, what I see in a lot of technological advances, it's leading men towards evil and wickedness, rather than leading them towards glorifying God with what they discover. Because in many cases, all they're doing is thinking God's thoughts after him. They're discovering things in the creation, then they're using them against the crea- the creator's natural order. Okay? But nevertheless, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. 
I will make him an helpmeet for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. Now, I don't know how many, how long this took. <laughs> it's obviously taking place here for Adam to name all the animals. And you got to think it's a, it's, it's a long process, but that was part of him taking dominion, was naming the animals. He gave names to them. God gave him that privilege and even that duty to name the animals because that's what it says. God brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Now, I got to tell you, I don't know that Adam used, obviously, the words that we use, because, I mean, I kind of think of things like platypus. Where, where did... <laughs> what? I, I'm thinking, he obviously didn't use English, so, you know, what what is being said there? Anyway, it's kind of comical when you kind of think about some of the names of some of the creatures that we have today. But whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an helpmeet for him. See, all the animals had male and female, right? Right now, among the human species, there was just male. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs... Or some translations say his side, a portion of his side. Uh, many have related this to Christ on the cross, that the church is born out of his side with the spear into his side. Many have related that kind of, of picture there simply because that's what the New Testament does. And we're going to look at that in a minute, how the man is to love the wife. She is a part of him. She comes from his side. And he closed up the flesh thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he woman and brought her unto the man. Just like the animals. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they both were naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So we see at the first that God has instituted marriage. The concept of the man leaving the father and mother. Of course, in this case, Adam's father is God. Um, but he clings to his wife. She clings to him. They become one flesh. Now, that's not just in a, a sexual relationship that they have within their marriage, but they begin to think as one. They begin to act as one. They begin to speak as one. Uh, and you often find this with close-knit uh, spouses. You'll find that they can finish each other's sentences, right? Or they are thinking along the same line so that when one starts to do the one thing, the other one comes alongside and knows exactly what to do there to help them. And that's this is this is a great thing, fellas. You know, the Bible says if you find a wife, you find a good thing, right? Don't you forget it either. Uh, those women come to be our helpmates in the mandate that God has given us. He's given us a dominion mandate that we are to uh, take dominion over all things in the earth. We're not to take it over each other. We're not to lord things over one another as men. We're not to be tyrants. That's not what we're to be. But we are to honor the Lord in the things that we do. 
And the woman comes alongside us to help us in that endeavor. She is our helpmate. And uh, again, if you have a good wife um, who is doing just that, man, you ought to thank God for it. And if you don't, you ought to pray that God would make her one. Okay? All right. Now, with that said, this is a, a man should have fidelity towards God, shouldn't he? He should have fidelity towards the Creator. Um, Matthew chapter 22 tells us this, and this is beginning in verse 34. And when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. And one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, see, so when those of you who listen to Bradley in the afternoon, when he talks about somebody asking sincerely, uh, this is what he means. He means somebody who's not trying to catch him in a word game, who's not trying to, you know, get the gotcha question in there or something like this. He's talking about people who are genuinely, you know, wanting to understand what's going on. They may tell you, here's where I'm at and this, that, and the other. Okay, how are you getting this or that and the other? Okay. That's a that's a genuine question. And I think genuine questions need to be answered. This is how we learn. If we don't ask questions, we never learn. In fact, this is an example of following right alongside, and I don't know what happened in my background there, but this is an example of following along with uh, you know, what Jesus himself was doing. What was he doing in the temple at 12 years old? We read about this the other day, or we talked about this the other day on on uh, Monday. Monday, yeah, Monday. What was he doing? Well, he was in the temple, and he was asking a lot of questions of the teachers who were there, wasn't he? Did Jesus need to learn something? Well, in his divinity, no, but in his humanity, yes. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us he learned obedience in his humanity that way. But he had to learn things. But unlike you or I, who may have to go over it 10 or 20 times to learn it, and then constantly be reminded of it or we forget it, Jesus learned it once and that was enough. He was perfect in his understanding. So, what do we see here in Matthew chapter 22? Well, we see this. This guy is coming to tempt Jesus. He's trying to catch him in his words. Master, which is the, greatest, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Hmm. You get that? That's New Testament, by the way. If you love God and you love your neighbor... You're fulfilling the law. Do you understand that? If you love God and you're loving your neighbor, you're fulfilling the law. Oh, yeah, but we can't, we can't uh, keep the law there. Well, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying, if you do this, all of the law and the prophets hang on loving God, loving, loving your neighbor. How, how do we know that? It's pretty simple. First table of the law. First four commandments are for your relationship between you and God. The last six that Moses gave were what? Dealing with our relationships with one another. It's pretty simple. I don't know why people see this 
you know, fight here against it. The law can't save you. I'm not saying that at all. Only Christ can save you. But when he saves you, guess what? You have an affection for what he says is right and what he says is wrong. And you want to obey him and you want to give glory to him. And the way you do that is through obedience. And he empowers you by his spirit to do so. That's why he saved you, Ephesians 2.10, for those good works, loving God, loving your neighbor. This is what he does, not what you do, it's what he does in you. Because you're supposed to be dead, right? That's what Paul said, I'm dead, I no longer live, it's Christ who lives in me. Is he living in you? Hmm. Men? Is he? So, there you have it. There has to be a fidelity that men have towards God, both in the dominion mandate he set before us, and in all things, and how we love him and how we love one another. Second, men have to be meek and humble. Now, this was something that I saw uh, in you know a lot of different in a lot of different ways um, when we get into politics. You get men who are brash, who are arrogant who are tyrannical in their own measure. And people think, oh, that's how a man should be right there. They look at it that way. Certain, a certain presidential candidate is very much like that. And some people give him a pass on that. They, they ignore his blatant open sin, and they say, that's, that's how a man should be right there. That's how a man should be. And they love it. They like it. Because he reflects their own carnal nature. That's why. But men are not, real men are not to be like that. They must treat others with love and respect just as Christ did. Now, look, that does not mean that you don't speak out against wrongdoing. But it's understanding that those that surround you are made in the image of God too. Okay? And first and foremost, that must be with our wives and our children. Micah. You guys are familiar with the passage. Micah 6 8. What does it say? He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Hmm. Isn't that what we're supposed to be about? Yeah. First thing, do justly. My, my friend Bill Evans, the truck driver theologian, he put in something the other day. Let me see if I can pull this up real quickly. I, I thought it was very uh, thought-provoking. Um, don't know if I've come to that conclusion just yet uh, as to what we should be doing with regards to it, but it, but let me bring this to you, just so you can think about it. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. I don't know if you guys have thought about this much, but it's just something for, a food for thought here. This is Bill's uh, meme from the truck driver theologian. We are told, quote, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, end quote. Traditionally, we have been told that this explains to us that to be angry itself is not sin, only that we should not let the anger go unchecked overnight. 
But what if it is really saying that not to be angry at injustice, for instance, is to sin? Further, we should do something about it immediately and not go to bed until we have addressed the injustice. Now, you may say, well, that's a little far-fetched there, Tim. Maybe. Maybe. But I want you to think back to the command statutes and judgments of God. I want you to think about the, the records that were kept there in the Old Testament about how they dealt with somebody. And they dealt with them fairly quickly, if they, especially if, it's, if this is a capital crime. Basically, you have you know, one of two things that go on in the Old Testament for violation of law. You have a capital crime, means you're forfeiting your life for committing it, or you have restitution. You damage something, you steal something, or whatever the case may be, you restore. There's no jail sentence. That's not what's going on. And it's amazing the people... <laughs> that I run into, who think just because the Bible mentions prison, like in the New Testament or in the Old Testament where they take people and they, they put people in, the, you know, like Jeremiah, they throw them in a well, or you have the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in prison, or Jesus, you know, caught there by those guys back and forth in the different places they were in, or other apostles who were in prison, that somehow just because it mentions it and it presents it, that somehow God commanded it. He never commanded it. Never. Ever. And they think that's punishment. That's not the command, statutes, and judgments of God. It's not. So you have these things going on, and this is presented here. You go look in the Old Testament, you'll see they didn't wait around days and weeks and months and years to carry out the punishment against the guilty. They brought it very swiftly. And this, this is what we should be doing. In fact, the Bible says it's putting the evil away from you. In doing that. And just like we speak about being active locally in your community, one cannot deal with a large number of people if he's not willing to deal locally in his own home. And so, men, we are called to demonstrate that love. To demonstrate it. Not to sit and, and necessarily talk about it, but to demonstrate it. How are we to demonstrate it? Well, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, usually you go into, uh, into the church, and of course, uh, Paul deals with the wife's submissiveness to the, to the husband, and a lot of guys, boy, they rail on that, and then you get this, and then this is the whole thing here. It's really all on us, guys, isn't it? Husbands, love your wives. Not somebody else's wife, your wife's. Your wife, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. How did Christ love the church? How did he love them? He told them the truth. He corrects. He disciplines. He washes the church with the water of the word. He gives his own life so that the church can be clean and without blame and without spot or blemish. That's how Jesus loves the church. This is how we as men are to love our wives. Oh, it's a great task. Thank God we're not left to our own strength to perform it. He gives us the ability by grace and through His Spirit to do what we cannot do. We cannot do it in our flesh. We may can pretend, 
but we're incapable of it as men doing and loving our wives as Christ loved it, loved the church. If you have that kind of love, you have it because of what he's done in you. Period. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it, it, that it should be holy and without blemish. So want men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined into his wife, and they shall be one flesh. That's right out of Genesis 2 we read a minute ago. It's a great mystery, Paul says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. It's a big deal to be a husband, isn't it? It's a task that men undertake to care for another person in this manner, specifically setting their love upon their wife. Again, the particulars of God's love could be expounded here. Um, <clears throat> and I can give you numerous examples of how God sets his love upon one person and not on another. God did not love Pharaoh in the manner that he loved Moses. God didn't give the covenant to Pharaoh. He gave it to Moses. God didn't empower Pharaoh to obey him. He didn't give him a regenerate heart, but he did that to Moses. And we can go down the line. Jacob and Esau, Israel, uh, Ishmael and um, uh, Isaac. We can go all over and see this. We can see it even in nations that God set his covenant and his promises with Israel, and he didn't do that with the nations around them. He had a special love for them, and he's not bound by, who he, he doesn't have to love everyone the same. He doesn't have to do that. Because the reality is all of us deserve to be castaways. We deserve to be lumped on the, on the trash pile of history and God destroy us if we're honest with one another. Because we've broken his law. That's what we deserve. So the fact that he reaches down and gives us new hearts and grace in his spirit is the grace of God. It has nothing to do with us. It has to do with who he is and how he sets his love upon a, a people. And how, do, how does that come about? It comes about as men preach his gospel, his real gospel. And his spirit comes alongside and makes those men alive to that word. That's how he does it. And so men, what are we to do? Washing the wife with the water of the word. There was a, um, there was a guy, uh, and I think I've told this before, but there was a, a man who had a grandson. And he had one of those, if you guys seen those old, I don't know, I guess they're bushel baskets or whatever, uh, the old woven kind, the wooden, you know, weaves. And um, they would bring in coal for their stove. And the basket would get dirty, get black and 
stuff all over it. So he had his grandson go down to the creek, which was behind their house, and wash out the basket. And the grandson kept going down, and he'd run out of the water, and he'd get some of the, the coal off, and then he'd come back and he'd say, is this good? And he'd say, no, take it down there and do it again. And he went back and several trips this little boy is doing, and he can't get the coal out of the, the, the fibers of the wood there. And his grandpa looks at him, he says, well, this is kind of like what happens with when you, when you read the Bible. The Bible talks about it being the water of the Word. And he says, each time you read it, it's cleansing you. There's a, there's a cleansing effect that's happening. And he says, each time you take that basket down there, that basket's getting cleaner, and it's getting cleaner, and it's getting cleaner. Even though it still has some dirt there, it's washing away that dirt. It's getting rid of it. And he says, the Word works very much like that. You're going to put that word in, it's going to have its effect. It's going to have its cleansing effect on you. Um, and so men are to do that. Now, how are men to lay down their lives? As Christ laid down his life for the church. And many men will say, well, you know, if the time comes, I'll give my life for, for my wife and my family. And I have no doubt that men will do that. But are you doing it now? Are you laying it down now? Are you denying yourself the football game or whatever that is fancies you? Are you putting that on and leaving this off? You have to determine that for yourself. Are there more important things that you have going on than doing your duty here as a husband, as a man? And there may come a time where we have to lay our lives down in a violent fight, physical fight, to protect our wife and our children. But we're doing it daily in denying ourselves to bring them what they need. Men, hmm. what an example we have in the person of John the Baptist. You know, we read about him just a little bit the other day on Monday. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 11. You have your Bibles? Matthew chapter 11. Here's Jesus talking to the people, and he's specifically the multitudes here who've come out to see him. And Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, verse 7, Matthew chapter 11, What went ye out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind. But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Are you in the kingdom, friend? You're even greater than John the Baptist because you've seen all the fulfillment here. I mean, it's pretty pretty incredible statement that the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. And he says, um, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. 
For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if ye will receive it, this is Elias or Elijah, which was for to come. That's out of Malachi. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, so Jesus is, is saying basically, up until that time, John was the greatest man who ever lived. He was, but he says, those in the kingdom, you're even greater than him. Not because of your own status or what you do, but because of what God does in you through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says this, he says, he's the Elijah to come. You know, you know the, 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 those who call themselves Jews and are not will celebrate by leaving an empty chair at their table. Do you know who they leave that empty chair for? Elijah, in case he shows up suddenly. Now, they, they're, they're getting their concept from the Old Testament, rightly getting it from there, but they're misapplying it. Jesus is telling us exactly who's Elijah that's spoken of. It's John the Baptist. I continue to hear people talk about two witnesses, and one of them's going to be Elijah because he didn't die, and neither did Enoch. And so they speculate all over the place about this, and it, there's just no need for the speculation. There really isn't. The Elijah who was to come was John the Baptist, and he was a great man. In fact, Jesus said, none greater than John up until that time. None. What a man. What a mighty good man, right? <laughs> I mean, he, he is a guy who was out there eating locusts and wild honey. He didn't make a great fashion statement either. He just had something that was durable. And yet he was the greatest man that lived up until his time. And those of you in the kingdom are greater than John. Let that sink in for just a minute. Jesus confirms that again in Matthew chapter 17. Here's what he says. His disciples came, this is John the Baptist, excuse me, his disciples came to him, asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias has come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. He said, I'm going to get the same thing that John did, but John was the Elijah. He's the Elias here. He's the one who was to come just like the Scripture said he would, to come and to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. Yep, that was John the Baptist. And how was he doing that? He was preparing the way of the Lord, which interesting, interestingly, I, I use this with Jehovah's Witnesses when they, when they come to the house. We had some ladies come, I don't know, several weeks back. And this was something that I shared with them. I said, you know, when you go and you read John the Baptist and he talks about, I know who I am. I'm the guy who's preparing the way of the Lord. Now, if you go back in the Old Testament where he's quoting that out of Isaiah and you see what he says, he's preparing the way of Yahweh, right? Or some of the you know translations use Jehovah, but we understand what's going on there. He's pointing to the true God. 
the one the Jehovah's Witnesses say they're representing, but they're not representing him. And I say, John the Baptist has come to prepare a way for the Lord, the way of the Lord. And, and who does he point to? <laughs> who does he point to as the Lord? Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's who he pointed to. And yet for the Jehovah's Witnesses, but Jesus is not the true God. No, no, no. He's a created being. In fact, they would argue he is Michael the Archangel. He is the one who stands up for his people in Daniel. But that's not who he is. In fact, John's very clear. He is God of very God. He was with God in the beginning. He was God in the beginning. And Jesus even prayed, Father, give me the glory that I had with you before the world was made. Hmm. So how is, how is John driving the hearts of the fathers back to the children? How is he doing that? It's in what he's preaching. He's preaching the law of God. Does he point to the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? Yes, he does. But he points back to the law. And what do we read in the law? Well, we've been over this time and time again, but it never hurts to remind ourselves of these things, does it? Because the more we remind ourselves, the, the longer it sticks in our thinking. Deuteronomy 6. These are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it. Now, God is speaking to men. Now, I have no doubt about that. He is speaking to men because men are charged with carrying this out with their own families, right? So, But he's speaking to them, and he says, these are those things. And so, this is what God has taught you. Verse 1, God commanded to teach you, right? And then let's go down here just a little bit, because not only in verse 5, in verse five we're told... Um, that they're to love the Lord. We're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and with all our might, men. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. They're to be in our hearts. Is this what you're storing in your heart? The word of God, the bread of life? And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. See, this is what Elijah was to do. Turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. How And doing what? teaching them the ways of the Lord. It's right there in the text. And shall talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontless between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. We're to, we're to teach them. We're to, to wash our, our wives with the water of the Word. We're to diligently teach our children the law of God. Even as Isaiah said, if you don't point back to the law and the prophets, you don't have any light in you, period. You don't have it. If you want to abandon the law and the prophets, if you want to say they're no good, they're just done away with, all this other stuff, if that's the way you think, you don't have any light in you. Oh, you got some knowledge, but you don't have any light. That's what Scripture says. That's not what I said. That's what Scripture says. If you don't appeal to the law and the prophets, there's no light in you. And sometimes in that teaching, what do you have to do? Sometimes you have to discipline. You have to chastise, right? Proverbs 13, 24. 
He that spareth his rod hateth his son. Listen, friend, do you got a rebellious little man at the house? Get the rod out. Little wooden spoon will do it. The picture here is the, the rod is a piece of wood. You do it to inflict harm. That's not what you're doing. You're doing it for correction, to get their attention. Let them know there's a consequence if they're behaving badly. You correct them. And why do you do that? Because you love them. Look at what it says. He that spareth the rod hateth. You're showing your son or your daughter hatred if you don't correct them. You really do. But he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. He, he chastened. If you love your child, you chasten them. You correct them. Why? Because you know if they go out in the world behaving the way they're behaving, somebody's going to end up punching their lights out or killing them. Or they're going to be in worse trouble. And so we want our children to honor the Lord in what they do and what they say, in the intents of their heart, in their actions, everything. We want them to do that. And God does that for us, doesn't he? He does that for us. Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to what we're told. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. See, life isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. Look at what he says. Let us run with patience. See, it's a marathon. You, I, I, when I was a teenager, um, we had uh, we had a champion uh, track, a field and track team, and um, we ran the four forty relay. There's four of us guys. We ran the four forty relay, and um, I would run the second leg, and we had made it the state championship and things of this nature. And the running in that was a sprint. And one day we were at a local track meet and we didn't have our guy to run the mile. I'd never run a mile. And um, they said, we need somebody to run a mile. And I thought, I'll get in there and give it a shot. I never ran one. Running a mile is different than running a 440 relay. Running at 440 relay, you get that baton and you go as fast as you can to pass it off to the next guy. But when you run the mile, you just need to keep a nice steady pace. And you may burn it out at the end. Your legs feel like they're cement on fire and everything else. But you do that. Now, I never run a mile, but I came in second. That was kind of kind of cool for never running one. But you run it different. And life is that way too. It's a steady pace with patience that we run the race. And when we're looking to the finish line, so to speak, who do we see there? Verse 2. Looking into Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Men, do you got some things that you're enduring right now? Do you got some things that were, there's attempts to shame you to si into silence? not to do it, are there attacks on you that come and it says, you better stay down, boy, and you keep getting up, good. Your Lord endured the same thing. 
He endured the cross, he despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, have you? Not yet. Striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the or exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Listen. Listen, guys. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons? Hmm. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. And then he gets to this. You know, I, I've told people my dad used to, uh, he used to give me a whooping. That's what we called it. I usually got a belt, <laughs> and he would tell me, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I, I, I never understood that concept. I really didn't, even with my own children. I knew it hurt. But God, in his word, reveals the same thing. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. I mean, how many of you got a spanking, and you thought, this is the greatest thing. My dad really loves me. No, you're thinking, he hates me. He's angry with me. He's mad at me. I mean, that's what you're thinking. And this really hurts. How is this good for me? We don't understand it at the time. But boy, you get a few years down the road, and you were telling everybody, I had a good daddy. He spanked my body. He got my attention when I was acting rebellious and foolish. He did that for me because he loved me. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way and let it rather be healed. Hmm. I've got just a little bit further uh, I want to go with things. And then we're going to close out. So if you want to catch us, Sons of Liberty, it won't be long, five or ten minutes probably, uh, sonsoflibertymedia.com, uh, beforeitsnews.com, and also rumble at Sons of Liberty Radio Live. Bradley, be with you at three, and Lord willing, we're going to see you back here in the morning, 6 a.m. Lord willing, we're going to talk about the militia. Don't miss that one. See ya. Okay, I want to welcome everybody coming over from the radio, and just a couple more comments here, and then we're going to close this out, okay? Um, we are commanded to follow our king, right? In his commands. Proverbs 1 7. We're not to twist his word. Mark 7 8 and 9. In order to fit what we think we ought to be or what we ought to be doing. Proverbs 14 12. All of this has been missing from men and manhood in America for some time now. Men think that being a man is guzzling a lot of beer, being able to lift a lot of weights, going to the sporting events, um, you know, doing all of the uh, stream sports and 
roughnecking and stuff. And some guys think it's just about hunting or fishing or whatever. And those things can be a part of a man's life. I'm not saying that those things can't be, but that doesn't define the man. And these things that we're, we're talking about today are very simple, basic things, aren't they? They deal with the self and control of the self and then the governing of the home. All these things then translate for bigger things, such as in the church, elders and deacons. We see that in their character. Where's that character built? It's in the home. It's demonstrated in the home. Where's your character for those who govern, who are given authority by the people to do things on the people's behalf? Where should that come from? Well, it should be given to men who have character. This is why you know some of you continue to ask, who are you voting for? I'm not voting for any of them. Well, then you don't have anything to complain about. No, no, no. That's not what it is. I'm not voting for any of them because I will not give any approval or consent to be governed by men I don't know what their character is. Not giving my consent for it. Well, you got to vote for somebody. No, I don't. And I haven't done it in years. Well, then why do you talk about all these things of this, that, and the other? I'm telling you what they're doing, and if you want to consent to what they're doing to you, then by all means, run out to that voting box because you obviously know voting works, right? I mean, the crowd I'm talking to are the same people that point out the voter fraud. But you think that voting is going to fix it. You think that voting is going to fix it. I, I, I don't. Are, are you not putting two and two together there? Well, if we don't vote, the Democrats are going. Aren't they doing that anyway through the fraud? Isn't that the argument that we've been hearing for years? And by the way, they're doing it on the Republican side, too. There is no way somebody like Lindsey Graham gets into office in my state without that kind of stuff. I, this guy is such a traitor. He's an open traitor to the people of South Carolina and the United States. But people think... They have that ability to do all these kinds of things. Hmm. These things are missing from manhood in America. And we really need God to bestow upon us repentance. I, I know that's hard for people to understand. Because it does get into an issue of election. It does get into an issue of predestination. It does get into an issue of the character of God. And the fact that he, set, he shows mercy to whom he will show mercy. And to whom he will harden, he will harden. Romans chapter 9. Some people can't stand that because they need some kind of control. Even if, they, even if it's just a half a percent that they can boast of that they did something. They mustered up enough faith. They got more in spiritual enlightenment or something as a dead sinner to do this. That's not the way it is. And this is why men would rather talk about the problem than look for solutions to the problem. Because if you keep talking about the problem, you never have to do anything about it. It's just perpetual. And this is why I say, I think there's a lot of Second Amendment groups. I think there's a lot of abortion groups, you know, pro-life groups and others. Not all. I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush, but I am telling you, there are a lot of these kind of organizations that will take your money to keep the fight going, but they have no intention on getting the knockout. Because if they do, they're out of a job. If you're able to virtually eliminate abortion, if you're virtually if you're able to to virtually 
deal with every gun law that's ever been written, and anybody who would even propose such a thing, if you have a mechanism set in place to deal with them right then and there, and it, it's done and over, they don't have a job. And so they talk up the problem, but they never bring the resolve. They never bring the solution. You guys remember, uh, maybe some of you have seen the film The Patriot. I know it's old now. It's funny. I, it just seems like a year or so ago, I remember seeing that for the first time. But in there, you've got the, the main character's son. He goes into the church, and he's asking for godly men to join the Continental Army at the time to fight against the tyranny that they were facing. And, and he calls on volunteers right in the middle of the church service. No men. But the young lady who is to be his bride stands up and respectfully calls out all the men, including her own father. And she says, are you just going to stop at mere words? You, you've been talking about this stuff. Are you going to stop at just mere words that you're engaged in here? Are you going to be men? And one by one, young and old, the men began to stand that they would go. And as they're leaving, the preacher goes too. And he says, sometimes I got to defend the sheep against the wolves. Yeah, that's exactly what a preacher's supposed to do. Exactly what a preacher's supposed to do. And if you don't believe me, uh, go read the story of Jonas Clark. Go read the sermon. In fact, I've done it. You can find it at uh, settingbrushfires.com. That's where all my morning show are, are archived. Um, and I don't think YouTube pulled that one. I think we did that on Rumble. Um, so I, I think the video is still there. Um, but it'll be Jonas Clark. And I read his sermon a year after uh, Lexington Concord in which they lost several men out of their um, church due to the protection they had against the British who were coming against them. And they helped train them, the men of the church. Again, boy, you want to see what a church should really be looking like today. Go back there in Genesis and take a look at Abraham's family. 318 trained men within his family. Now, they weren't from his loins. They were men who were who were his servants, but he trained them. They were a militia in and of themselves. And I think the church ought to be that too. Just as much as we're called to go to the poor and go to the hungry and those imprisoned and we're to love one another and all, that's a demonstration of love too. It's to protect them from evildoers. In fact, our Constitution, the only, let me say this again, the only law enforcers of the U.S. Constitution are the able-bodied men. That's it. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15 and 16. The militia. That's you, fellas. That's me. That's my boys. That's my son-in-laws. That's my uncles. That's my father. That's your brothers. and you Not your sisters, but your brothers. The men of your community. You're the militia. You're the law. You're the law as it was. 
what you've been trained as law enforcers are nothing but there but to be reporters, investigators, detectives. That's all they're that's all they really are. They're first responders. They respond to the crime after it's already happened. Men are called to be those who deal with the crime as it's happening, thus why you are armed. So The first place we have to start, men, is in our own homes. We have to deal with ourselves first, and then we have to deal in our own homes. If we'll chart our course there, beginning there, it'll be much easier as we begin to advance out. You're faithful with a little, you'll be faithful in much, right? Faithful in a little, faithful in much. So where are you? Are you engaged in the things, or is your mind on worldly matters? Are you aiding the enemy by sending your children to public indoctrination centers? Sending your wife off to work with another, for another man when she's supposed to be your helpmate? Giving yourself over to the deceptions of the enemy? What is it that you, as a man who's listening to this right now, is there anything you need to repent of today? I can tell you, you know, the Lord was dealing with me when I was sick the other week, quite a bit. And I'm thankful, as I said. It's good that I'm afflicted, as the Scripture says, that I might learn your statutes. But if you hear what God is saying to you today, I want to leave you with this final thought. This comes from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15. While it is said, Today if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, for some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness, and to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. The reason a lot of men who profess Christ are not doing what they should be doing in their homes and in their communities is because they don't believe it. For many. For some, you've gotten slack. And therefore, the Lord is calling you to repentance. Put those things in order. Get your own house in order first. And then as you do that, you'll branch out from it. Be faithful in the little. God will make you ruler over much. And we'll see a small change. These happen in pockets. I'm not looking for it. You know, if, if the Lord would, would grant it to sweep the entire nation, that would be fabulous. But usually that's not how the Lord works. He has worked that way before. We can see that in the story of Jonah going to Nineveh, turned the whole city around. Oh, that he would do that now. But nevertheless, we have to be faithful in our part, don't we, fellas? Yep, we do. May God grant us the very repentance that he requires of us and may He give us the grace that we need by the power of His Spirit to glorify Him in these things. Tomorrow, we're going to kind of pitch this on with the idea of the militia. Um, you'll get a little history. Some you'll know, some you want. Um, everybody will get a little bit, I guess, of different things. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to talk about that with the militia, okay? So hang with me. Don't be angry with me. If you're angry with me, why are you angry? Because I told you the truth. I'm not here to put you down. I'm here, you know, I want the words to be edifying. I want them to build you up. If God has to tear you down some, 
that's fine. Let him do that, and then let him build you up. All right? I want words that edify the hearer. I really do. And um, But sometimes God has to cut us, doesn't he? He has to whittle us down. He has to grind us down in order that he can build us the way he wants us to be built. All right, Bradley will be with you at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, sonsoflibertymedia.com, and we'll see you back here in the morning, Lord willing, 6 a.m., bright and early. Talk to you then.